Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plushcare. Plushcare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to The Parenthood. As we enter our 70th day of lockdown, the relationship we have as a family is becoming particularly intense, with daily squabbles between siblings becoming a daily, if not hourly, occurrence. So I thought it would be good to know a bit more about this unique and often confrontational dynamic, what is normal in sibling relationships, and whether it is indeed possible for siblings to be friends. My guest today is the clinical psychologist and author Linda Blair, herself a mother of three millennials. Well, thank you so much for agreeing to be on. This is such a treat. I'm so glad we finally get to speak because it has, we've been kind of chatting, you know, virtually for quite a long time. And it is something ironic, isn't it? That when we're most disconnected from other people, we finally get to connect. I agree with you. I couldn't agree more. We, this is bringing a lot of people together. A lot of people from our past, a lot of people that we have let drift And do you think that spending so much time with your family, do you think this is a good thing or a bad thing for family and particularly sibling relationships? It's mixed. It's neither, it's not solely good or solely bad. It's uh, quite mixed. We have ups and downs. (laughs) (laughs) So that's pretty much everything with human relationships, by the way. There's none that I would say everything is good about it or everything is bad about it, you know? And in a way, you know, I suppose that the sibling relationship is the first really intense relationship you have. And it's a model for future relationships, too. And I suppose if children learn during lockdown that relationships can get intense and when they get intense, they can get fractious. That's not a bad thing for them to understand. That's right. You've brought up two important things. One is that the longest relationship we are likely to have in our whole life is with our siblings. We tend to think, oh, that must be my parents or uh, my kids, but it isn't. It's with our siblings in most cases. Mm. Furthermore, you're quite likely to be having a relationship with your sibling between the ages of zero and seven, which psychologists and neurologists know is the time when the brain lays down foundations for the way it's going to behave in the future. It, 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 they're not rock solid in the sense that you, can't, you can always learn and change. But what it does do is whenever you're stressed, it is the default option. So the way you behave socially in those first seven years, that is with others, is going to be the foundation for the way you behave with others all the rest of your life. So I think that's critical. 
And to, so to me, that sounds pretty scary because I've got two younger sisters. I'm the oldest of three. We're quite close in age. So I've, there's me, then there's 18 months as the next sister, then there's another three and a half years as the next sister. And we are incredibly close now. But if you look at the relationship I had with them between naught and seven, we were awful to each other. I hold my hands up. I remember hitting my sister, little, little sister, so hard that I actually thought I'd ever done it. I was awful to them. Does that mean that my default, you know, way of having a relationship is the brat I was between naught and seven? Not at all. Not at all. That's our first reaction is to defend ourselves because that's the amygdala acting. That's our primitive survival technique. And siblings are a threat. You know, the job of an infant is to be as cute as possible so that it gains the maximum attention from its carers because we unlike any other creature on this earth, spend more time relatively in our lives with our carers because we're helpless than any other creature. So our main job is to make sure our carers love us best. So boy, are siblings a threat. However, what you said earlier is, is, you know, what kind of a setup does this pose when we have siblings? It poses an opportunity. This is the chance to learn. I do tell parents who come to me troubled because they say, oh, my kids, they really don't get on. I say, well, I got two things to say for you. First, you have lots of opportunities, therefore, to teach them how to negotiate and compromise. And then we talk about how to do that. But the other thing is that the interesting statistics that I really am drawn to show that when you're very fractious when you're young or very close either way but when you have an intense relationship young you're more likely to have a very strong positive bond later and why is that it's because the intensity of the emotion when you're young is what counts not the color that is such an uplifting thing to hear in the middle of lockdown mm. with, with my children. And actually that, that does sort of make sense that, you know, it, it models because, you know, no relationship, whether it's with your husband or your friend, is going to be perfect the whole time. There's going to be times when they piss you off. There are going to be times that you feel irrationally annoyed. And I suppose it's modeling how it's, it's easy to be friends when life is easy, but it's yeah. not easy to be in a relationship when things get a little bit harder. That's absolutely right. Uh, this is an opportunity that we have never had before. I wouldn't wish to ever have it again, but we do have it. And it's a chance to teach under extreme stress how to be able to get along. And you use the word modeling. Boy, is that important. Whatever we say, <laughs> what we do is more important. So when you're interacting with your partner, your friends, it's very important that you reflect as often as you can. We can't do it all the time. But as often as you can, is this how I want my kids to behave when they're grown up? And that's the guide. You yeah, know, there's no other guy. Don't worry about what any book says or what any of your friends do. It's what you want because these are your kids. So 
It's, it's interesting though, because I see that the, the relationship my two children have, I've got a 10 year old and a nine year old, and the relationships they have with their friends are very different to the relationship they have with each other. You know, both of them are polite and, you know, they show real empathy with their friends and, you know, they always behave well. And then I see them behave with each other, particularly my son who, you know, at school, perfect, perfect child. And he'll come back and just be awful to his sister. He'll deliberately annoy her. <laughs> He'll, he'll, you know, it's, that's quite difficult. And is that normal then to have very different relationships with your friends and your siblings? Oh, yes. But I mean, who do you dump on when you're feeling really stressed? Who gets it? Before I was married, it was my, my family. And yep, now that I'm married, right. it's my husband. <laughs> okay, let me explain why. We don't dare show our uglier side to anyone except those we know will love us anyway. And therefore, although it's not very nice to see them going for each other, you know they trust each other. So, I mean, presumably then, sibling rivalry and fighting is a good thing. It is. It's Well, first of all, it's an inevitable thing. Because of what I said earlier about our biological need to be the one in the nest that gets the first worm, we are absolutely wired to consider anybody else as competition. So no matter what your, if you have one kid, it says about how much they want a sister or brother, they don't. Not once they've had them for 24 hours. So, you know, that's re really important to know. But the scrapping suggests trust and, and therefore you can rejoice that they feel that ability to let go with their sibling. But, but it's also an opportunity to say, hey, you know, just fisticuffs or screaming is not the way that you in the long term when you're out with other people are going to be able to remain popular. And does it also potentially cultivate an honesty? Because I definitely see this, I mean, I'm bringing a lot of my own experience into this, but with my sisters, we fought. I remember very well my godfather coming to stay and saying to my parents, oh my God, I've never seen children like it. They are awful. And my parents recounting <laughs> that to us and saying, you really need to tone down the fighting. But I'd, I'd say out of like, most of the people I know, we have one of the most intense relationships now. We are very, very close. And I love the relationship the most because... They are really the few people in the world who I can say, does my bum look big in this? And they will give me the absolute <laughs> honest answer. They're not going to be polite. And if, you know, we all have them, you know, if I'm acting like a brat, they can sit me down and go, Marina, stop being such an idiot. And I don't even feel that my best friends can have that conversation with me. Do you think there's an element of when you're fighting, you have this really intense relationship that you sort of you have run the gauntlet of, of getting someone to hate you and they still don't hate you. So it means you kind of say anything to them and you don't risk your relationship. You've said it better than I can. That's absolutely <laughs> right. You know, that is totally right. And it's wonderful because when, when we are vulnerable, uh, what we learn, because, you know, showing your worst side makes you vulnerable, but what we learn from that is that it actually makes you stronger. Because don't you feel great knowing that there are people in your life that do check out your bum and it's just fine. They still love you. <laughs> 
It absolutely does. I feel like I've got two people who are absolutely on my side and everything that they say would be in my interest rather than in anyone else's interest. And you're right, you know, the world can be a scary place. I feel armed that I've got two siblings that totally have my back. Yeah. That's that's great. And I think I would like to return to something you were talking about earlier, which is how differently we are with our friends than we are with our siblings. Another opportunity right now is to teach under great stress ways of being more like a friend with your sibling. You know, it's it's eventually you will branch out and you'll have your friends and but as you said, it's never quite the same. So if you can also be friends with your sibling rather than just the one you run to when you're crying, which is what a lot of uh, sibling relationships do do end up being just because of time and distance and all that. Gosh, you've got an extra dimension there because we can't have enough good friends, can we? We can't. <laughs> and if you can combine that honesty into a sort of friendship-based relationship. So how do we do that? Is there anything as parents we can do to shape the dynamic that our children have with each other? Many, many things. Let, let's start with the kind of things you can do when they're not fighting. As often as possible, set tasks and projects that uh, demand cooperation rather than competition. As soon as you say, oh, gosh, your drawing's better than Sylvia's, you, you hurt. And you also make somebody think, not consciously, but unconsciously, uh-oh, they'll get that first worm. So, you know, it's very important that you encourage cooperation over competition. There's a classic study in the 1950s, I think it was, where this guy, whose name escapes me right now, but it'll come back in a minute, asked some boys at a summer camp to compete in teams. And they became really quite nasty, kind of kind of like Lord of the Flies, really, I think. It was awful. But then, instead, he changed from some sport thing to uh, saying, look, how about if you all work together to make better tents in the camp, or I don't know what it was, or make a campfire. Suddenly, they were friends with the out groups, you know, with, the, with their competitive groups. It's cooperation that's important. So whenever you're thinking of things to do, you know, make bread together or, uh, I don't know, you may, you lay the table and you cook the, the vegetables or whatever it is, make sure that it's competition. Secondly, not to praise achievements, but rather to praise effort because nobody can control the achievements. I mean, if your sister's two years older than you, then, you know, she's going to be better at language, for example. If one of your sisters has a physique, which just by birth makes her unbelievably attractive, there's nothing you can do. So you you don't, don't want to praise what's already there or what you perceive as, as something they've accomplished as much as you praise them trying. So everybody's on an equal playing field because everybody can control how hard they try. Yeah. So those are things to do when they're not fighting. What about when they're fighting? <laughs> okay. Makes Hopefully, it harder because you want to sort of respond with anger. That's the oh, yeah. time when I'm more likely to snap at my children. Well, let's, let's stop there. Anger is a cover-up for fear. Anger is not a basic emotion. It's a cover-up emotion for fear. And the fear is loss. Loss of all kinds of different things, depending on what you're angry at. I'm afraid I'm going to lose my reputation. I'm afraid you're going to attack me. I don't know what it is. But with your children, I'm afraid they're going to get out of control. 
That's what you're afraid of. And you don't want to see anybody hurting anyone else. So do understand that. And once you understand that, it's a lot easier because the way we deal with fear is not the same way we would deal with anger. With fear, you, you, you just neutralize it by, I mean, unless it's a real fear, in which case you will not think. You will simply separate them. Let's say they really were hurting each other on a rare I mean, that doesn't happen very often, but what if it was? You would separate them. You wouldn't have any emotion. You might later, <laughs> but at the time, you will trust yourself. You will react when it's real. You know the difference. But when you're worried about it, you got to neutralize the fear before you figure out what to do. So breathe. Breathe in through your nose. Hold it, even though you won't want to because your whole body's telling you to dip in, and so you'll want to breathe even deeper, but stop. Breathe out through your mouth as slow as you can. Just just five of those breaths. Takes not even a minute and a half. Changes everything. You got your logic back. Yeah. So then what do you do? Well, the first thing is to separate people because they're not in control. You just about weren't, so you know how it feels. <laughs> you wouldn't do anything <laughs> sensible, would you? So we got to separate and calm down. So... They go to separate parts of the room or they each go to their own room, not as a punishment, but as a time to calm down. Let me talk to you in a minute about the preparation for that because hopefully you will have prepared for that and it will be a pleasant experience for them. But anyway, two minutes, three minutes, it doesn't take long. If they're teenagers, it might take 10 minutes, but you know, it depends on their age and you'll know when your kids are likely to be calm or if they are teenagers, you can say, look, when you feel calm again, come on back in. Right, so they're back in, however long it took. Now, you're going to teach them a, the, one of the most important cognitive and social skills they'll ever have, more important than any A-level or university degree, and that is decentering, the ability to look at life from another person's point of view. Before a kid is seven or so, they don't do that regularly. They can do it. Someone called Margaret Donaldson, very good developmental psychologist, uh, did some tricks uh, with uh, Piaget, who I'm sure all of you have heard of, the, the best child psychologist there, I think, ever was. He said that you don't know how to do this decentering business until you're about seven. But Margaret Donaldson knew how to trick kids with something called the three mountain task is very famous, which showed that actually three or so, they can do it, but they, it's so effortful that, that unless all the conditions are right, they don't. So when they're younger, you'll have to help them with this next task. But the more you help them, the more they're learning and boy, the earlier they'll catch on to how to decenter. Older kids, seven onwards, six onwards. If you've got a real smart kid, five onwards, just who knows. They'll be able to do it. So what do you do? Well, Sally, I want you to tell me what you think Paul was really upset about. They have to figure that out. And if they don't do it well, you could maybe ask another question, better than telling them. But if, te if questions don't work, then you suggest some ideas that might help. And then, Paul, how do you think Sally was feeling when you knocked over her Lego? How, how do you think she was feeling? So we practice that little exercise of how does the other guy feel. 
And, and, and then, so they're in the same room at this stage. Yeah, that's right. They're calm. They've come back in and said they're calm. They're, they're ready to talk. Uh, you may not want them too close to each other. I don't know. But, you know, <laughs> it's still discussion time. And you, of course, are calm by then. So you're the good role model. So everybody has a go at how the other person might have been feeling, why that happened, whatever they're fighting about. So then you say, well, Sally, what do you think could happen to make things better now? So she comes up with an idea, and then Paul comes up with an idea. Again, prompt help if they can't do it yet, but always praise them for trying. And then once you've got a couple of options on the table, because what you're also showing them is another real important thing, is that there's not a black or a white solution to anything. There's all kinds of possible compromises. Then together you choose the best one, the one that most people are happiest with, and you may have to kind of put some icing on it or change it a little bit but that's how you do it and of course by then most kids have forgotten what they were fighting about anyway so they'll be quite happy to accept whatever comes up so it all looks very successful now parents don't like this very much because it takes so long you know it's so much easier just to say go to your room and shut the door until they stop screaming or just scream at them so that they're cowed but they don't learn anything from that and what you do with this is you teach them the most fundamental social skills, the best EQ, that is emotional intelligence trick you can teach them, which is to put themselves in other people's shoes and secondly to learn that there are a number of possible answers to any problem. By doing that, I promise you that you will have less fights in the long run and you will have invested less time with kids who are more competent. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I think what a lot of us parents end up doing is resorting to apologize. And then what tends to happen is that you'll get a grouchy child going, I'm sorry, and not looking That's in right. the eyes. And so they're going through the motions, but you know, it doesn't, they don't mean it. It doesn't mean anything. Should you then You're get teaching, them... You- you're teaching them to lie, aren't you? Yeah, you're right. Not a good idea. Yeah, you're <laughs> right. But what about, I mean, apologizing wasn't part of what you just talked about. Should we nope. then say, do you feel you should need to apologize? Or actually, should we not talk about apologizing, but more think about, you know, what we we're talking about, just teaching them to empathize with the other one? Well, what's apologizing all about? Apologizing is saying, I wish I hadn't done what I did. Can they change that? Yeah. No. No. So I think it's a waste of time, just like I think guilt is a waste of time. 
these things that involve traveling back into the past are a waste of time. Why, sh why should we dwell on those when we've got so much interesting, fun things to learn about now? You can learn from mistakes, and they will as long as you don't make them learn, as long as you allow the opportunity for them to learn. In other words, make them learn by apologizing you did wrong. They'll figure it out. Trust them. We, we we don't trust our kids as much as sometimes I think as we could. They they're they're smart. As long as they feel appreciated and they feel that you have faith in them, they'll have faith in themselves. And boy, will they learn. And one of the the other big issues within siblings, I think, is jealousy. I remember yeah. this too. Yeah. And it, it, bizarrely, even though I'm now 41 years old, if I feel that my, chill, my, my siblings, my sisters, one of them gets more from my parents, whether it's, you know, attention or focus, it really gets my goat. And I'm sitting here thinking grow up Marina and yet it's so in it's so inbuilt in me that you know in any other relationship it doesn't happen and when I'm looking at my yep. husband and his sisters I'm like okay just you know be the bigger person here but I still find that it's so kind of entrenched in in my psyche this are we all being treated equal that it's something that surprises me forgive yourself you're, all you're doing is reacting from your amygdala. I told you, you. You said it's so ingrained in me. Of course it's ingrained in you. It was there before you were, as you were born. It's, it's again that instinct. Oops, I'm not the favorite. Oh my God, I might die. I might be kicked out of the nest. I might not get the worm. No, no, no. It's f just forgive yourself. Say, oh yeah, that's that primeval reaction, but it won't do me any good. So let me try and breathe it away. And yes, she did get a better job than me, darn her. But you know, I, I got to live with it. If she was my best friend, I'd be glad. And so as a parent, is fairness then very important in terms of making sure your children aren't jealous of each other? Well, yes, that's why I said don't praise achievements and don't compete. Those are the two things that make them feel unequal. If you, if you try your best to, you know, you, you did really well in your A-levels. I, I can't believe how proud I am. And Sophie, my goodness, you can dance like the wind. You know, so you, you, don't, you don't compare directly ever. You try and make sure that they're praised for their own gifts which will be different everybody's gifts are different and also that you get them to join in really with praising the other sibling if they feel like it if they don't as you say as we said and I said to you don't get them to lie but just point it out and then turn back to them again and say wow but you know your dancing skills are fab uh, so that they're always feeling, I have something to offer. I have something very special. And you also don't praise what they come home with in the way of achievements as much as you praise that they tried. Mm -hmm. I always say that, and I think it's so important, not just with siblings, but all the time with kids. If you want a self-confident child, then you know you must remember that's a priority. They can't, for example, no matter how hard they work towards an exam, they can't know which questions are going to be asked. So that's out of their control. They also can't know who's going to choose to answer the same questions they do. That's out of their control, and teachers have to grade on a curve, at least for these big national exams. So most of what comes with achievement, at least academically, is not in their control. The only thing that is, is their effort. So that's where you put your emphasis. 
And what about talking about the more material things, which children also focus on? You know, there's the, you know, so-and-so, they got a bigger present for me than Christmas. Mm -hmm. And I get that sort of fairness is really important. But at the same time, sometimes, you know, you you really want to give your child this amazing bike because they're really into, you know... How important is it to be monetarily fair with them? Yes. Or how? Or do you just teach them that your turn will come and your time will come and I will give you a big gift when the time is right? No, not quite. I. Uh, it depends on what values you want to give your children. If you want to let them grow up thinking that the more money that's spent on them, the more value they'll have, then I guess you can do that. But I would rather not. I would rather money was a tool that you use to run your life a little better rather than a measure of how valued you are. So I would not, and I never did, pay any attention to whether I spent you know, 100 pounds on one kid and 10 pounds on the other. I listened to what it is they really wanted for Christmas or their birthday, and I tried, if I could afford it, <laughs> to make sure they got it. And if they questioned that, I'd say, well, that's what you said you wanted, honey. And, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, if I didn't get that right, then we'll work towards doing it better next birthday. But you don't talk about how much it cost. Okay. That's just not, don't, don't give them that terrible burden yeah I mean obviously as they get older they become just more aware you know when oh, you're sure. talking about 15 year olds then they are probably yep. hyper aware of you know yep. that actually the xbox 360 cost more than the xbox two, yep. two whatever I don't know anything about these things clearly <laughs> good so obviously I think most parents would agree that you're not going to place too much monetary value when they're little but when they do just intrinsically know do you then have to say you know I spent around 50 pounds on one present so I have to spend around 50 pounds on the other present no two no please don't please don't but if they say you know you didn't spend as much money on me as as you did on my brother you say well if that's real important to you then what else would you think would make your present better and if you can afford that go ahead but you don't get bothered about it you see there's no emotion there it's just trying to understand what they're grappling with and of course when they're not stressed then then the monetary value and they'll say oh I didn't really want those pink laces you added to it to put that I said I wanted to make it the same value but you have to let them discover if we te- if we give our children information they don't learn it as well as if you help them discover it so better to listen, try to be decentered yourself, take their point of view, and react on that level. Yeah, sometimes it, money will matter. I mean, some kids will care more about money, but then what you do is you talk to them about ways they can earn money because if that's going to be a value for them, then what you want them to feel is control over it. So how can you earn some money? How about a paper round? How about, you know, I've got one of my friends, golly, her kid is does podcasts or something. I don't know what they do, something on social media, and they, they make good advertising money. Good heavens. I mean, it's an older teenager, but whatever. If that matters to them, help them learn. Because I, I, I think I'm right in thinking is what children really want from their parents is attention more than anything. And understanding and acceptance. Yes, attention, but not just attention. They don't just want another present. Not really. They think they do. But what they really want is understanding, acceptance, and genuine pride, which means they'll be proud of themselves. Unconditional love, which is the sort of 
overused, I think, psychological phrase for how to be with your children simply means whatever you do is not very really critical to me, but who you are, you unique thing that has never been before and will never be again is so amazing to me. That's, that's unconditional love. So you've got to work hard to understand them all the time because you don't know them. I don't care how much genetic material you share. You don't know them. They're unique. And they're always changing. Yeah, always changing, uh, influenced by the, those that they're close to and uh, to wider events too. Yeah. And I guess they're also, you know, we might be confused by them, but they're also confused by themselves and by what they're feeling. Oh. Oh, gosh, adolescence is so hard. I don't know why we've had to have adolescence. It's so mean for kids, you know. They see themselves. I don't know if you've ever seen those mirrors at the uh, circus in the old days where you get all distorted. That's, yeah. They see their themselves that way. You know, they're huge and distorted, and everybody else is tiny. I, I remember with one of my teenagers, you know, and she was, oh, do you see this spot? I mean, I would have had to have a microscope to see what she was talking about but for her it was eight feet long and ten feet wide you really do have to be a a saint through their adolescence because they just have a new perception of themselves until they discover where they belong in relation to their peers that's a different job than when they're younger but that's their job in adolescence how how do I fit in with the, the people that are my future? And then once they do, if you read Eric Erickson and his identity crisis uh, stuff, once I have figured out my group for now, then how am I unique in that group? What makes me special? And you will have laid the foundations for that second bit. Yeah. And... In terms of trying to get your children to kind of get on and, you know, I think before yep. we have children, we all have this idyllic view of <laughs> lots of happy children running around in the garden, getting on really well and everyone's happily, lives happily ever after. And we all know that's not the, the you know, the case in, in all honesty. In terms <laughs> of trying to promote that kind of utopia, how important is spending time together as a family versus giving children one-on-one time? How important is it to sort of have experiences together that's so that you can rejoice in in the positivity of those experiences, a shared experience versus being able to give each child some one-on-one time without, you know, and I guess this is probably even more relevant for children that are either very, very close together in age or twins, where essentially they're kind of experiencing the same thing at the same time. How important is it for them to have that, that unique time with their parent? Well, can you remind me in a minute to talk about twins? Because I'll forget because I yes. know I'm going to go off on a tangent. The the balance, it's not good to spend all your time as a family, and it's not good to spend for them to spend all, all their time out with their friends. It's a balance. I have to admit that I haven't heard too many grown-up kids in my office saying they were so glad as teenagers that they were forced to do family things. So even though we family members, you know, parents, we really want our kids to love bird watching or hikes or museums or whatever it is we love. I haven't actually heard them 
benefit from that very often. So some, some will say, you know, I'm so glad if my mom hadn't taught me to cook and made me cook, I wouldn't be the good cook I am. It's, it's, it, but I'm just saying to you, it is, I'm afraid a bit of a cha- of a chance thing to do, to do too much family time. On the other hand, it is very important to teach your child the importance of structure and they'll be less likely as teenagers to have mood dips that are serious if you do have structure. So there should be some family time, I think, daily, which they know that they need to fit into. So when they're young, uh, dinner is a good one. When they're teenagers, there's often so many school things that you can't do that necessarily. So maybe dinner once a week. I remember I have five brothers and sisters and we had Sunday lunch. My parents were both working too. So that was like so important. So if they have a couple of posts, (laughs) posting signs along their development that are they have to respect. They learn to fit into a structure when it might not always be convenient and to get on with people when their mind's probably on other things. So I I would have some structure, but I would encourage them to develop their own talents and to do different things that I'm then able to praise. When you're young, sort of below about 10, you don't know what it is you really are good at. So the more different activities you're able to afford, both in your time and in your um, finances for your child, the more likely it is they'll discover their true talents. So, you know, give them lots of opportunities, and if they quit, do not drum into them. They have to have piano lessons because they've had them already for two months, and you have to go on. If they want to experiment at that young age, I think that's okay. As they get nearer to adolescence, you got to teach them that nothing happens that's worth having unless you work through the difficult stages. So then they do have to stick. If they choose ballet, they're going to do ballet all this year or whatever it is. But that's all part of that developmental process of teaching them things at the time they're able to do it. Little kids, as I said, they don't know what they want necessarily, and they also don't know how to wait and persevere. So, you know, you wait. But as they approach adolescence, they will know how. And if you don't reinforce it, they'll never do it. But then, you know, as I see it with, as children get older, they get a bit more bullshy and they sort of yes. don't want to do things. Yeah. And, and obviously there is, you know, there's a real benefit in having a shared experience, which is genuinely yep. fun for everyone. But very often, you know, you've got your 13 year olds like, no, I don't want to do it. I mean, yep. presumably there is a bit of give and take. Sometimes you do need to say, actually, do this for me. This is really, really important for me because once they've done it, they've really enjoyed it. Yeah. And, and I suppose it's just a balance. It's, you know, some yeah, things it's, I am going to put my foot down and some things, fine. That's right. That's right. And you'll make mistakes, thank God. If you didn't make any mistakes as a parent, you you would actually give your child no reason to grow up and leave home. And so it's extremely important not to be perfect. But it is important to try your best and also to apologize when you don't get it right. Because what that teaches the child is that it's okay to try as hard as you can and dare because you may make a a mistake because you can apologize and then learn from it. So yes, I think there are things to 
to demand. For example, a lot of families where I grew up in the Midwest in America, you had a summer holiday that was in the same place every year with all the other families that were either your friends or your relatives. And there were years when you didn't want to do it. But I'm so glad we did that. But if I had that plus... 10 other things, like I had to go to church and I had to go to other things or something every week, I'd probably feel overwhelmed. You just have to, oh, it's so hard. And as I say, hopefully you'll make some mistakes so they'll want to grow up and be independent and have their own family and do it better than you, which of course they won't. And they'll realize how much you tried and how wonderful you were only when they have their own kids (laughs) and their own relationships if they don't have kids. Only then. The reward comes late as a parent. (laughs) (laughs) It does. It does. And that reward is something we will kind of keep keep our mind on. on, uh, Oh, oh, and that reminds me one thing. Don't don't ask a child to do something for you because then they feel an obligation to you and they'll resent that over time. You don't want them to feel obliged to you. They want, you want them to want to be with you. That's the best way to get them to come back and visit when they're grown up. So say, you have to do this. You know, I'm afraid I'm a little old fashioned. It's perfectly all right to say, because I said so. (laughs) Okay. So don't guilt them into, you know, feeling that they need to spend Christmas with you. Say non-negotiable. We're spending Christmas together. That's that. Yeah, that's it. That's it. We're doing it. Yeah. Okay, that's really good to know. <laughs> <laughs> it's easier, really. And and also, it's just like when you were talking earlier about apologizing. That's so dangerous because we can do we can make children behave in certain ways. We can't make them say certain things. It, it re- really is a very thin piece of ice you walk out on when you ask them to say something <laughs> because they don't have to. I, I will tell you a wonderful story about my middle child who um, is, uh, it turns out, I didn't know it when he was this young, but he is very autistic and is very, he's independent now. I'm really proud of him, but it was quite a long go in special schools and things. But when he was two, he was the most passive child. I see why now, but I thought it was because he was just calm, but actually it was because he wasn't interacting with anyone. But he was sitting in his high chair and he wouldn't eat his peas at lunch and I said uh, listen here if you don't eat those peas you can't get down you have to stay in your chair until you eat your peas that was at 12 o'clock I remember because I remember the sun setting at seven and he was still calmly sitting in his high chair and we joke about it now (laughs) but you know what you can't make a kid like say things or eat things or you know you be careful what you demand (laughs) really important because it puts you in a weak position I had to get him down and apologize (laughs) and we you mentioned twins earlier I mean that's obviously a different dynamic and you know I've spoken to people who've had twins and they say oh we're so lucky you know they've got a friend for life but very often that relationship is even more fraught than siblings. Yeah. I think especially my father's an identical twin. And I remember my grandmother saying, I just, I, I was even, I was glad they weren't identical girl twins because there's a lot of comparison. Do you feel that the relationship that twins have is potentially even more intense than siblings? That's such a great question. I'm glad you reminded me because the research on twins is riveting. We've used a lot of the research on twins 
twins race together and race separately, particularly identical twins. This is from Europe, Denmark mainly, where the best birth records are. We've used that to uncover all kinds of things that are genetic and non-genetic, like we know about schizophrenia and stuff like that now from those studies. But in the States, there are a couple of ongoing twin studies just looking at development and differences and similarities in dizygotic and monozygotic, in other words, identical and fraternal twins. Minnesota is the most important study, the Minnesota twin study. But I think there's one in California too. And what has come out of that is, well, so many things, but let's talk about a few of them. First of all, you're perfectly right. Identical twins have more rivalry than fraternal twins. And the least rivalrous twins are a boy and a girl twins. Um, let's look at that. Why, why is this spectrum? You know, they're exactly the same. They are more rivalrous. I don't know about whether it's girls or boys, but girls can use the weapons of words more than boys. So maybe we notice it. And fraternal twins are the least when they're different gender. The reason is that, let's go back to that thing about having to be special in the eyes of your parents. In order to be special, you got to be different, don't you? You got to be, you can't look exactly like the other. Uh, how could the parents choose between you if they don't know who's who? So you want to be different. And therefore, please, parents of more than one kid born at the same time, never call them the twins or the triplets. Never. And don't name them Flory and Maury or, you know, Jim and Tim. Make differences. Don't get, oh God, there was a, some kids in our neighborhood when I was little, cute little girl identical twins, but their mom must have spent hours every morning making their hair curl in exactly the same way. And they are so different now and so un with each other <laughs> because of course they looked exactly alike. Don't dress them the same. They are two individuals that happen to have been born at the same time. So you will reduce the sense of rivalry, the more you treat each one as an individual, which is hard when they're identical. It's, you know, you get so much attention for having identical twins. Everybody thinks they're so cute, but don't, please don't worry about everybody else. Just make sure your kids are different. So that's, that's the way that you deal with the inevitable more intense rivalry. That said, twins often say as adults that they are closer to their twin than anyone else. Well, they've certainly shared more minutes with them because they were in the womb with them. They had nine months ahead of everybody else. So, you know, I, I think it's a, it's a two-edged sword, but you can, you can't, do a lot about how close they decide to be, but you can do an awful lot about how rivalrous they feel. So that's one thing. But the other thing I really want to say, and I try to say it every time I speak about twins, is please remember the other siblings. Think about what happens when you go down the road, say you've got new, newborn twins and an older kid. Let's imagine that. So you're walking down the road, these two little kids in the pram, look pretty much alike when they're babies anyway, let alone twins. Everybody's going to stop you, aren't they? Oh, twins. Oh, they're so cute. Aren't they, darling? Or they want to come over and bring presents for the twins. Well, be sure that as a mother you say, oh, when you're taking a picture of those two little kids, could you could you also bring Sally in here? She's so cute. And make sure the other sibling 
is also photographed or also gets a gift when there's a gift or you mention something good about the other child. Because unfortunately, the place where sibling rivalry is most painfully felt in families with multiple births is in the other kids, not in the twins. Mm. And I was going to ask you, it was going to lead on very nicely, but, you know, obviously the beginning of a sibling relationship, not necessarily with twins, is when the first sibling arrives. And it was your book, Siblings, I've really enjoyed. And you talk a lot about the importance of introducing the baby into the family, but actually that it's so much more about the older child rather than the baby. It is, because baby isn't going to remember. I mean, they'll have some kind of memory imprint, but it won't be something they can call up consciously. The other kid will. (laughs) So it's very important that you... Remember, oh, that was a question you asked me earlier Should w- about spending time independently with the kids or spending time as a family. Ten minutes, even five, of one-to-one time with each kid each day will give you a mountain of gold later. It is so important that you continue to spend one-to-one time with each child, no matter how many you have, even if it's a couple of minutes and even if it's only a couple of times a week. But ideally, 10 minutes a day is what I hope you can manage, but it may not be possible. And even um, if you're sort of, you know, you stick one kid in front of a computer game or the TV or whatever you don't really want them doing, but that, you know, reaps rewards if it means that you can spend quality time with another child uninterrupted. That's right. Stagger bedtimes if you can too. That's another good way because then you can read the bedtime story just to the kid. Nothing's worse for one for a little five-year-old than you're you're nursing the child on your lap while you try to read the story to the five-year-old. Boy, do they feel second rate. You know, there you are, all that tactile stuff with the baby and not touching them. No, just just one at a time, even a couple minutes, bath time, fixing dinner time, homework time, anything. But one-on-one is just like so vital. So if you can continue to do that, that will re- really pay off. I've and heard it a lot of times in my clinic. Do you know if there's any evidence or in your opinion, do is the kind of sibling relationship more harmonious in smaller families with just say two children or does it get more <laughs> harmonious the more children you have? I love that question because I decided to research that for the beginning of my book. And what I found was a a number of huge, very good surveys across the world, some in Australia, some in Britain, some in America. And one found that the happiest, most harmonious family is two girls. Another study within months of that one is similarly big and stable, found that the happiest families are four kids of the same gender. Another study found, uh, I think this one was Australia, five children. It doesn't matter. What does matter is that you as a parent tell your kids you have the perfect sized family. If you're content with what you've got, they will be. Doesn't matter uh, anything else. And how about age? Does that I mean, Ah. you know, you've got, if you've got, let's say, a 10-year age gap between two siblings or even, I mean, they're obviously going to be less interested in the same thing. They have less of a shared common interest, certainly in the early years. Is is, is is that relationship easier amongst siblings that are closer together? You you need, now that we can, you know, when I was born, you could 
it was the same year the pill was invented. So <laughs> you can, you know, before that, you had kids when you had kids. But um, now you can pretty well choose when what kind of age gap you want. And I think what you have to do is think through a number of issues. First of all, how old are you? And how fit are you, you parents, not the kids? If you are young and pretty strong, then it doesn't really matter how close they're spaced. And you may want to get the child bearing out of the way and get on with the relationships. That's fine. If you're older, then as you alluded to a minute ago, the more the age gap, the less they will have the same demands at the same time. So the easier it will be to cope with them. So uh, a larger age gap is better. Now, what in terms of the kid's point of view is the ideal? In terms of uh, in the long term being close, a, sh a close relationship that is less than two years is the best. Uh, because although they'll compete heavily when they're young, because they'll have many of the same needs at the same time, when they're older, they'll be going through a lot of the life transitions at the same time, having kids around the same time, getting their jobs, all that stuff. So there's many things to keep them bonded. Because there's a lot of evidence that shows that although we're quite close until we leave home, or at least fractiously so, but we're close, we tend to drift apart until we're in our sort of late 50s, and then a lot of sibling pairs come back together. So if you want to encourage the closeness in those middle years, then it would be quite nice to have them closer together. But it's going to require a lot of stamina from you. If, on the other hand, you want a more caring, cared-for relationship, you want a child who can look to their sibling as almost like another parent, or you want to encourage in an older sibling caring tactics, caring abilities, then a larger gap between the more than four and a half years is, is good. Uh, the reason I land on four and a half years is because that's about the time the older one will start school. So you will still get one-on-one -on -one time with each kid. That is a big advantage of a larger space. But they won't have that same kind of closeness as equals. They'll have closeness as the cared-for cared. And, and it's, none of them's bad. Yeah, and presumably also there's, you know, it's not like if you do have your children with a large gap between, they're going to, you know, the older one's going to be really caring. They might just not get on yeah, they might be just yeah. be different you know yep. and I suppose a lot of it also has to do with the happiness of the parents you know they always say happy mother happy baby and I do the more I yep. see of children growing up and, and my children and other people's children the more conversations I have with the experts like you the more I realize that if that sort of parental harmony is there like you said that if they're happy with the size of their family if you know then that harmo harm harmony is probably going to spread towards the children. So I suppose if having four children is going to wreck your marriage and stress you out because you're so yep. tired because you've given birth every year for the four consecutive yep. years, that's going to be no good for family harmony. Much better to have two children separated yep. out, less of a financial burden. But, you know, it's, it's, I suppose, different for everyone. But I suppose you, as a parent, you need to be quite selfish and start out with what's going to be doable for yep. us and achievable for us. Because actually, if we're happy and content and not too stressed, then that's probably going to be the biggest positive effect on our children. You've said it so well. I don't need to say it again, but it is absolutely true that the most important thing is that you are a good role model. You are happy 
uh, you are able to find the good in what it is you have and what it is you've been given. Otherwise, the ch- if you come home every night from work, no matter how high your salary is, and you say, oh, God, I'm so exhausted. Thank God that day's over. You know, do, do you think your kid's going to want to grow up? Does that look like fun? If you're a housewife who doesn't go to work at all and you say every day, oh, you guys are so much effort, I'm all the time cleaning up, and so do you think they're going to want to grow up and have kids? No. So have fun. Be selfish. Go to some parties, you know. Meet with your friends. You know, they won't survive with a good uh, child care alternative. In fact, they'll learn to be more flexible in their social skills and their uh, way of getting on with people if they're not at the very beginning, but soon on, if they learn how to get on with other carers. So please be selfish. (laughs) And, you know, balance that, obviously. But it's very important that you are seen to have a good time so that they'll want to have adulthood as a welcome path ahead. Well, Linda, it's been such a pleasure chatting to you. I have really, really enjoyed it. It's been worth the wait. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. And it's so easy because you just ask all the right questions. I don't know how you do that (laughs) because we didn't didn't plan this at all, did we? We just sat here. But that's wonderful and I appreciate it. It's it's good fun. Oh, good. Well, thank you so much. Should we talk about your, your books? Because you are a prolific author. You've written a lot about parenting. We do a, a, te- a column for The Telegraph, which I have particularly enjoyed during lockdown. It's The Daily <laughs> Dose of Calm, which is so lovely yes. and reassuring, especially when, when you hear so much drama in the media. Yeah. It's something I've really enjoyed. But I also really enjoy your, your books on parenting. So as well as your siblings mm. book, what, what else have you written about? Well, my favorite one, I have to admit to you, is called Birth Order, which is all about how the different positions in the family affect your social skills, which they do. When I was asked to write it, I was sure that that was a bunch of malarkey, and I was I refused to write it at first. I said, you know, I'm not an astrologer, I'm a psychologist. But actually, there's so much in that, in which position you are in the family, and how wonderful by the way, I just want to add, it is to be a single child nowadays. In my day, it wasn't wonderful because you were usually a single child by default and your parents were sad and overprotected you and wished they'd had more and you were grow- grew up not feeling the same as nowadays where many, many parents, almost 40% I think now, choose to have one child and put all their resources, as you mentioned yourself, into that child and understand how important that child it is for that child to play with other kids. But, you know, it's a wonderful thing. So birth order, I include on, uh, single children. I don't call them only. It sounds horrible. Single children. So that's my favorite book. Okay. Well, I was going to ask you about birth order, but we had so much else to talk about. I think this is a whole yeah, different podcast. Mind. Another time. Another time. We'll do that. But I wrote The Happy Child as my second book, which was how to raise your kids as self-confident and happy as possible, zero to seven. I can't say to you it's the best book on the market because I was learning how to write. But it does have some real good common sense in it. And then I've written some other books about stress generally. But those are my parenting books. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm glad you like The Daily Dose. I'm thrilled because I'm a bit of a... I love writing more than almost anything. But I'm a bit sure that I better just take orders because my ideas couldn't be uh, as good as the 
ideas of all the editors and everything, but that was my idea. So thank you. Um, it was my idea to insert just a little short piece to lift your mood every day during this difficult time. And I am so glad to hear you like it. Thanks. I really enjoy it. But thank you so much, Linda. It's been a real pleasure chatting to you. People can presumably just type your name into Amazon. They'll see all your books. Yeah. Do you do any social media? I have Twitter, uh, Linda Blair Psych, and I'm learning how to do Twitter better. So uh, I'm there fairly often, but not not like the real stars because I, it's not something I grew up with, social media, but I'm learning. And I have a website, lindablair.co.uk, which just kind of tells you <laughs> tells you where I trained and stuff, so you know I'm pucker. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, Linda. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you for sharing your wisdom during lockdown. It's given me certainly a lot to consider, and certainly in terms of sort of conflict revolu- resolution amongst my children, I think that's I'm going to try <laughs> that out, and I'll report back to you. Hey, I like that. I'll look forward <laughs> to that. Okay. Thank you for downloading another episode of The Parenthood. Please don't forget to subscribe, rate and review wherever you get this podcast from. It really helps new listeners find us. You can also follow me on Instagram. I'm at marina.fogel. But in the meantime, from Linda and me, thanks for listening and goodbye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.